The letter of Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and pay and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, carrying for themselves clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been forever reserved. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy without fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And that concludes our study in Jude. Let's turn over to the book of Revelation. (laughs) Wow, what a week, huh? After 24-7 warnings, all week long in the news, Hurricane Florence finally made landfall. And if you've been tracking these things, it it was Category 4 out in the ocean. It came in not as a 3 or a 2, but as Cat 1. And yet the rain is intense, the flooding is horrible, and will continue, they say, for the next few days. As much as 30 inches of rain, maybe even more. I mean, put that in in context. Seattle gets, what, 35 to 40 a year? This is one storm. Places are flooded. There has been loss of life. But what interested me about this particular hurricane is the intense press that it got ahead of time. And rightly so. We've seen if we're not ready, what happens? We see if we're ill-prepared, that damage and danger far outweighs you know, the, the warnings that come ahead. Severe storms need warning. And that's why Jude wrote this letter. It is a storm warning. And these are stormy times. So it's appropriate this morning that we open the letter of Jude, and by the way, it is a perfect precursor to the book of Revelation, because it's a storm warning, because it is written to alert and to prepare and to open eyes wide. Life is filled with all kinds of storms, as we've seen, as we know. Emotional storms, physical storms, intellectual, spiritual storms. And we like to consider, each one of us, uh, especially followers of Jesus, we like to consider Jesus in these storms. We like to think about Jesus walking on the waves of the sea. We like to think about Jesus in the boat calming the seas and moving in and, and, and settling the troubles in our lives. But the storms that Jude addresses, the particular storm, is specific. In this letter, he says quite clearly in verses 12 and 13 that these are hurricanes that are spun up by those who, well, they're carried along with by winds, verse 12, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved Forever, Jude is talking about the kind of storm that, that capsizes faith, that destroys belief by inter- introducing doubt. He's talking specifically about the storms of apostasy. He deals with this brutally and, and forcefully in this letter. And well, he should, because again, it is a storm warning. I I read this years ago. I like this quote, went back and hunted it up. This was J. Vernon McGee, who said, Jude hangs out a red lantern on the most dangerous curve along the highway the church belonging to Christ is traveling. He says, you and I are presently living in the apostasy. 
How much further will we go into it before the rapture? I do not know. Apostasy, he writes, was just a little cloud the size of a man's hand in Jude's day, but now it is a storm of hurricane force that fills the land. He wrote that almost 50 years ago. And here we are in these days about which Paul wrote. He said, 2 Thessalonians 2.3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now this storm has not made, as it were, landfall. The apostasy will be the time of Antichrist, which we talked briefly about as we were in the love letters of John. So it hasn't made landfall, but it is boiling just offshore. And we are feeling the impact. And according to the Bible, this storm does not downgrade as it makes landfall. It will only get worse. It picks up speed as the end draws near. And Jesus gave that forecast. He said in Matthew 24, verse 10, At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And then, Jesus says, But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Storm warnings. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here's the good news. While the Spirit of Christ inspired Jude to write this particular letter, you can almost hear him say, Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. And by the end of the letter, he does. By the end of the letter, it is better. There is hope. There is encouragement for those of us who are seeing the storm coming, who are hearing the warning. Jude is compelled, truly compelled. I don't think he wants to. But when he sits down to write, he is compelled to send off a dispatch of severe storm warning, but be encouraged because he is writing, as it says in the latter part of verse 1, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The letter of Jude. This is a brief text, as we've already read through the whole thing. It's a brief text with big truth. A pithy letter, if you will, with potent (laughs) language. 633 words roughly in the letter, 25 verses. But what is contained here is worth taking a little bit of time. We'll take at least the next couple of Sundays and Wednesdays to pour over this letter and consider what Jude is warning against. In the study, we're going to come across eight instructive illustrations. No less than eight in these short verses from the Hebrew Scriptures. Jude draws right off of that Hebrew background. We're going to note two stunning spiritual situations you don't hear anywhere else but in the book of Jude. Unique to this letter. Both, by the way, come out of Jewish apocryphal literature. That's the time literally between the Testaments, which introduces some interesting questions, but here is inspired truth. We'll hear about, as we've already read, but we'll look closely at an astounding argument between Michael, the archangel, and the devil. Weird. 
We'll learn of an ancient prophecy. I'm going to save this for next Sunday, but the prophecy of Enoch, the earliest prophecy on record, seven generations out from Adam. Adam would still be alive at the time the prophecy was written. Another fascinating uh, set of verses. By the way, Enoch's prophecy is also the very first announcement of the return of Jesus before he had even come the first time. Long before. Jude gives six absolutely vivid word pictures describing those who reject or deny Jesus the Christ. He paints those pictures and we'll look at those. And finally, Jude offers three eternal promises for anyone who confesses and accepts Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm going to try and again cover this bursting brevity. In just a couple of weeks we probably could use more. But this morning we're going to begin by answering four questions. So if you're a note taker, you can follow these through four questions. And the first question we've got to answer is, who's Jude? Who is Jude? Is his first name Hay or not? I mean, who is this guy? The name Jude, Judas in the Greek, is also from the Hebrew Judah, meaning praise. Same name, same name. If you're Hebrew living in the first century and you were named Jude or translated Jude in the scriptures, you would have been called Judah in your family. Judah, Jude, Judas, all the same name. Six different men share this name in the scriptures. It was a common name and and well used. In the New Testament, you read of men like Judas Iscariot, who could have been called Jude or Judah, same name. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. There's, there's Judas, the son of James, who's an apostle uh, among the twelve, forever called after that Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> Just, you know, a good thing, I guess. There's uh, Judas Barsabbas, who was a prophet and who, like Silas, traveled with Paul. You read about him in Acts chapter 15. There are other Judes, Judases, Judas in the New Testament. Again, like I said, six different men. But here we have Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And all indications are that James is the one who penned the letter of James, Yaakov, who described himself this way, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, interesting. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Bondservants, both these two men. Both these brothers, James and Jude, Yaakov and Judas, were sons of Joseph and Mary. Which, by the way, strongly undermines Catholic doctrine that Mary remained perpetually a virgin. She had children. She had children after having Jesus. Jesus' birth was miraculous. Jesus' birth, of course, was by the Holy Spirit. It was a virgin birth. But along come the other brothers, the family of Jesus, the earthly family, through Mary and Joseph. She gave birth to these And so, James and Jude, this Jude here is a half-brother of Jesus. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. They're back in Nazareth. Jesus had returned there. And they were saying, where did this man, this Jesus, get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And that is, I believe, this Jude. 
Well, if that's the case, Rick, why didn't they claim family ties to Brother Jesus? Wouldn't you? i got to tell you, if I was writing a letter in the first century, I would be awfully tempted to, Rick, a brother of Jesus, listen to what I say. Pay attention to my words. I was in the same household. We shared Legos. <laughs> they didn't even believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. His own family. They thought he was off his falafel. <laughs> Who is this guy? Who do you think you are? You ever get that with family? Who do you think you are? We know who you are. Don't try to tell us otherwise. Mark chapter 3 verse 20 says he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people, that is his family heard, they went out to take custody of Jesus for they were saying he's lost his senses. Brothers, mother, oh, he, he, he's out of control. John chapter 7 verse 4, his brothers are taunting him. They say, no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For John writes, not even his brothers were believing in him. And you know, it's just true. That sometimes when you follow Jesus, your own family are the last to believe that you've been born again. They don't buy it. You know what the effect is on us? We, we clam up. We just, okay, well, they don't think I'm really a Christian. They, they don't believe the life that I'm claiming to live. I, I just I can't talk to them about it. It's too embarrassing. They know what I used to do. Which is exactly the point. They know who you were. Show them who you are. Show them who you are. There is no shame in having been born again. But they may not believe. When his family finally did come around, neither James nor Jude would feel worthy to claim biological kinship with the Christ. They were content, kind of like the prodigal son returning home. They were content just to be servants of the house. And so both Yaakov and Judas... Both James and Jude refer to themselves as bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the lowest form of servant, doulos in the Greek. Slaves is probably a better translation. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James who also claimed to be a slave of Jesus I wonder if they remembered after the resurrection, Jesus saying, Matthew chapter 12, verse 48, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Jesus said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. He would say it to you today. He would look around this room today and he would say, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And wonderfully... Jesus' biological family got it. Eventually, like some of us, it took a little time to soak into the center of the sponge. But they got it. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, that these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There they are, in Jerusalem. As the day of Pentecost was approaching, they were there. They were gathered. They were part of the earliest disciples. 
And so James and John, or James and Jude, sorry, went on to become from non-believing brothers, believing bondservants of Jesus Christ. Not claiming that biology, rather claiming their redemption in Him. So that's Jude. When did Jude, number two, when did Jude write this letter? Probably in the late 60s. Not when Hey Jude hit the radio. The late 60s. 66 perhaps to 69 AD, somewhere in there. That's important to know with this letter. John, in his letters that we just finished up, John was talking about warning against Antichrist and how the Antichrist spirit was already in the world and how many Antichrists had already gone out from them and there were Antichrists and there was heresy that was trying to infiltrate the church. That was 30 years after this. So now we're back in the late 60s. But what's going on at the time that Jude pens this letter? By this time, Nero is going ballistic. He had already blamed and was in process of blaming Christians for the arson of Rome, which historians know that he started. He's the one who caused Rome to burn. He had designs on recasting Rome in his own image and wanted to rebuild the city to to honor him and so set fire everywhere. And in that horrible fire, he said, the Christians did it. They're the ones. By the time Jude is writing this letter, Paul is probably already beheaded. Peter had written his last letter and was probably also dead, martyred, as was Paul. And in the midst of all this, what was going on in the raging against the church in the late 60s, even then apostasy and its cold winds were brewing offshore and beginning to shake the shutters and rattle the windows of the church. Satan's going to go about it however he can. From outside, he will attack. When that doesn't work, he pulls back and tries to come up from within. That's how he functions. Always has, always will. By the way, speaking of Peter's final letter, which would have been written just before this, a year or two or three before this one, there are some interesting, striking similarities between the two. Now, there are some commentators out there who believe that Jude wrote his letter and Peter borrowed off of that, and I think I can show you how that's not the case. That Peter, Second Peter was written first, and Jude is clearly written secondarily, and you see it in the text of the letter. And Jude does pick up in a big way on Second Peter. In just 25 verses... No less than 13 of these verses are borrowed directly out of Second Peter. Repeating what Peter himself had already written. How do you know that Peter wrote his letter before Jude? Well, listen to this. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. I think I mentioned this when we were in Second Peter, but let me point it out again. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Peter writes, know this, first of all. Peter, the apostle... That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. He puts the the warning out there. Jude, verse 17. You, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Now, there were other examples, but that makes it obvious that Jude is quoting something Peter had already written, and we saw what Peter wrote about mockers coming in their mocking. So Jude is writing after that. 
But, but as I said, there are a number of obvious allusions and direct quotations that come straight out of Second Peter. That doesn't undermine Jude. What Jude is doing, not as an apostle, but as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, is he is underscoring the warnings that Peter gave. We don't know if, if it was Peter's second letter that did it, or his martyrdom, perhaps, Or more likely, the Spirit was simply moving in Jude, or all of these things came together. But when he sat down to write this letter, he meant to write another one. He intended to write something completely different. Question number three. Why did Jude write this letter? Why did he do it? Look at verse three. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, that was the one he wanted to write, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. There's his intention. I want to write about our koine salvation. Our common salvation. The word koine, where we get koinonia. Our shared salvation. That's one of the coolest things about following Jesus is you immediately become part of a fellowship of people who share your future. Our salvation is common. We're all in. We're going together. As we sang earlier, we'll fly away. It's not just you're going to fly away or that guy over there will fly away or I may, but I'm going to be all by myself. We... We'll fly away. We have a common, a shared salvation. Man, I can relate to, to Judas here. I, I get what, what Judas is doing. I, I often, in fact, 99.9% of the time, except when I'm in a bad mood, I want to talk about good things. If I'm grumpy, I might want to come in here and talk about apostasy. But most of the time, that's not my choice. It's truly not my desire. I love... I love to sit in the grace of God. I love to talk about salvation. I love to just share the gospel. I enjoy those places in Scripture where we just see Jesus teaching and and moving and, and it just warms my heart. My favorite place in all the Bible is to sit in the Gospels. And even when Jesus' teaching gets a little strong, yet we see Him turn around and, and heal people and we go, yes, healing, I love healing. Yes, redemption, I love redemption. Oh, look at the way He treats people. Look at the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's that's what what gets me going. That's what I want to talk about. That's what I wanted to talk about this week, frankly. And I open up Jude, and here we go. Haven't we had enough Antichrist? (laughs) Haven't we had enough apostasy and heresy and, and dealing with these things? And yet, here's Jude, and he's experiencing this. I want to write... To my brothers and sisters, I want to share the joy of our salvation. Oh, as David said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. But I felt the necessity, he said. What I wanted to write got replaced. I have to write about this. In verse 4 he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Note that. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
he wanted to write about our common salvation, he ends up writing about ungodly creeps. Those who creep in. Those who enter into quietly the fellowship of the church. And most of the letter then will deal with them. These ungodly creeps. What makes them so ungodly? Well, Jude points out two specific storm warnings in the larger storm warning of this letter of ungodliness right here in verse 4. Note this, two things. Number one, ungodliness turns grace into licentiousness. And he is talking to the church about those in the church. So be aware, brothers and sisters of the church of Jesus Christ, be aware that ungodliness takes grace and makes it licentiousness. Takes this wonderful thing of God. Licentiousness, what is that? That sounds like a big kind of church word. Theological word, don't be licentious. What does that mean? Is that what you get at the DMV? You're licentious? I don't... Grace into licentiousness. Licentiousness is aselgaia. And it literally means filthy immorality. Shameless sensuality or unbridled lust. Ungodliness takes the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, that sweetness of our salvation and says, Hey, I got grace. I can do whatever I want. And it is... It's a mentality that sadly is mixed into the church. Oh, oh, I don't think that blatantly. I I really don't. I I don't think most Christians would stand up and, and overtly say, Hey, because I'm saved, I can sleep with anyone I want to. Hey, because I'm saved, I can get drunk off my keister and it doesn't matter. I'm saved. I got my salvation. I'll sober up and I'll be fine. I don't think people would say that. But I, I do think it drives an awful lot of sin in the church when we figure we have grace. What's a little licentiousness? We have forgiveness. What's a little slip here or there? I know God loves me, so I got some issues in my lifestyle. It's all good. I'm washed in the blood. And Jude is writing to warn against that. Taking the grace of God, blood bought by Jesus Christ, and turning it into something shameful. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality. By the way, sensuality there is the same word, aselgia, licentiousness. Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things proceed from within and defile the man. And and that's the thing. Listen to Jesus say that. These things defile someone. These are the things that mess us up. These are the things that cause the filthiness. Now when I talk about this, I know I run the risk. See, See, I grew up going to church. I grew up going to church and listening to those old ministers, those old pastors deliver their old sermons, and I would hear them use words like condemnation, and I'd go, come on, man, lighten up. It's the 70s. <laughs> I'd hear words like licentiousness and say, that does not speak to our culture. And so some of these things I would just discount. 
not understanding what Jesus was saying when He says these things that we toy with, that we play with on the side, will defile you. Well, defile me. Okay, so I'll shower off. What does that mean? Defile? I love what John Corson says. He says, sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. That's the issue. God doesn't stand up there and come up with this this list arbitrarily. Well, let's just pick several things that that I'm going to say they can't do. They'll be fun things, so it'll be a pain for them, but I'm going to choose a few. This is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And if you do those, you're defiled. And we go, well, can't be that bad. God looks at anything that we call sin or the Bible calls out and says, if this makes him filthy, I'm going to warn him about it. If this makes her defiled, I'm going to tell her. Sin is harmful to me because it defiles me and God doesn't want that for any of us. But what happens in the church is is what I call trampling grace. See, that's turning grace into licentiousness. It's trampling grace. I have the grace of God and I'm walking all over it because I'm going to do whatever I want. And while a Christian might not overtly say that, covertly these things go on in the church. Well, how do you know, Rick, that these things go on? 29 years of ministry? Coming up on 54 years of living and doing many of these things myself while sitting in church? These things defile us. These things hurt us. We have a loving God, a deeply compassionate and caring Father who says, if you do this, it will hurt you. Don't do this. It will harm your spirit, your flesh, your mentality. And worse than trampling grace is stomping all over the gift of Jesus Christ Himself. Because ungodliness tramples on Jesus. Listen to the way the Hebrew pastor put it. He said in verse 28 of chapter 10, book of Hebrews, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the law. Break the law, and there were certain laws. If you break these laws, you'll die if there are two or three witnesses. That's the law. Death penalty. But he goes on and says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? That's a sentence, a verse I don't even like reading. The the very thought. Remember a few minutes ago I I said I love to be in the Gospels? I love to just be in the presence of Jesus and, and hear him teach. You can just imagine him teaching. You can imagine Him on the boat with the apostles. You can imagine Him breaking bread and feeding 5,000. You can be there with Him as He raises Jairus' daughter. Can you imagine trampling Jesus? The Hebrew writer says, How much severe punishment do you think He will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? How do we do that? And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. And that's what we do when we turn grace into licentiousness. When we say grace is my freedom to do whatever I want. I'm trampling Jesus. 
But the second thing that Jude writes there in verse 4, not only does ungodliness turn the grace of God into licentiousness, but it denies our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Ungodliness denies Lordship. Why? Because ungodliness makes me the Lord of my life. Puts me back in charge. And in fact, we've seen that. We saw that just in in 3 John on Wednesday night. Men like Diotrephus, who comes along, who loves to be first. That's how Diotrephus is described. He was one who loves to be in first place. Well, there's only one who is preeminent, and that's Jesus. But ungodliness replaces the, the Jesus on the throne of our lives and puts me there instead of Him. Others will come in with another Christ, an alternative Savior, a different, perhaps easier route, quote-unquote, to heaven if there was one. That's the Antichrist spirit that John talked about in First and Second John. Storm warning, Jude says. Hurricane coming. The greatest danger of an ungodly lifestyle is it will lead someone to deny the Lordship of Jesus. To set aside the position of Jesus in our lives. And Jesus Christ is the only hope of your salvation. So what are we doing if we deny our only hope? It just doesn't make sense. And by the way, that's why as we, as we are hurtling toward the book of Revelation here, that's why I keep encouraging you to bring people. Because there are so many who have never heard this. There are people who claim Christ at one point in their life. Who have fallen out of fellowship. They're, they're not going to church anyway. They don't know this. They're not aware of this. The world has impeded their walk. There are those who really don't know much about this Jesus at all because they were never taken to church or never introduced to a fellowship. Maybe they went once or twice, but it was just such light, pansy teaching that they thought, what's the use of that? I'm encouraging you you to get people here. Why? Because we will always declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying, please hear me clearly, I'm not saying that over and above any other church in the area. People need to hear the name of Jesus. And any church that's preaching the name of Jesus, I stand with. By the way, i got to make this clear. It is not the book of Revelations. I've said that before. I continue to hear people say that. I can't wait till we get to the book of Revelations. How many do you think there are? One. There's one. It is, listen to this, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. You didn't think I was going to go there. I'm going. Revelation 1.1 is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Period. That's the point of the letter. That's why John wrote. That's what matters. The revelation. Just one revelation. He says in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, that's God. Yes, that's Jesus. Who is God? How do you know that? Skip all the way over to Revelation chapter 22. Let's just finish it right now. (laughs) I mean, just in case we don't get to the end of this service before He comes. Listen. 
Revelation 22.13, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And Jesus says in verse 20 of Revelation 22, Yes, I am coming quickly. To which John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Ungodliness, listen, ungodliness denies that. Denies the lordship, the position of Jesus Christ over all of our lives. Denies my submission to Him and His ways and His word. Ungodliness denies even the fact that He's coming quickly. Because if we really believed He was coming quickly, I guarantee you, there wouldn't be a room, there wouldn't be a seat open in this, in this house. If we really believed He was coming quickly, we would be scratching and clawing. We would, you know what we'd be doing? We would be contending earnestly for the faith. If we really believed we had a couple of weeks till Jesus arrived. And I hear again and again, and I'm not saying this to guilt trip anyone, but my friends, I hear this over and over through Paul, through the apostles, through John, here through Jude, that man, we got to live as though He may come tonight. As though He may come next week. Live ready. Well, what if He doesn't? Then we have more time. Praise the Lord, tell more people. But live prepared and ready to go. The ungodly does not. Turning grace into licentiousness and denying the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The ungodly one creeps in. That's why I called him an ungodly creep. (laughs) He enters a fellowship. She steals in to steal faith. And oftentimes unnoticed. There There are teachings in the church today that are unnoticed heresies. Maybe with a small H, but they're not true. And yet they're being embraced in the church. And they're embraced because who's studying the Word? Who who really is knowing what God said versus what some book out on a shelf somewhere is teaching? Why why would they care, by the way, ungodly people? Why Why would someone even try to upset the apple cart of truth? If they could. Because there's one in opposition to all that is right and good and godly in this world, there is one who is opposed to Jesus' offer of eternal life, and he's a creep. He creeps around to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's the choice. Life or death. That's it. But these certain persons, these creeps you're calling them, Rick, and by the way, that offends me, but, you know, as I've said many times, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Thank you, yes. (laughs) These certain persons, do they even have a choice in the matter? I mean, look at what he says back in verse 4. They were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Sounds like they didn't have a choice at all. Sounds kind of like the other Judas, Iscariot. He was made to betray Jesus. That was his purpose in life. So we got to cut him some slack. He didn't have any choice. I completely disagree. 
Judas not only had his entire life to make a choice, he had three years up close and personal with Jesus to change his behavior, to change direction. The fact that he chose otherwise is why he ended up being the betrayer. But what about these, these ungodly ones who have crept in unnoticed, who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation? I don't know if I like that. And there are complete theologies that think, well, yes, of course, they were created for condemnation. They were predestined for punishment. There are some who, because God is sovereign, He has already chosen, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you can go to heaven, I'll save her, that guy's going to hell. I already made it that way. And people couch that in the idea of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. So He's chosen some to be saved, and He's chosen some to be condemned. And so, I understand this verse, that there are those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. There were those that God chose to send to hell. Doesn't really sound like a loving God, does it? But He's sovereign, yes, He is sovereign. And God is love, and you cannot take that out of the sovereignty. You can't pull that out of God in this moment or that moment. So how do we understand this verse if they were long beforehand marked out for condemnation? I've said this before, but I will say it again. Always, always bring the nature of God into the understanding of Scripture. You've got to understand, you've got to bring in who is God. When you come with the nature of God, who is love, who is light, who is gracious and compassionate. When you understand the nature of God and approach the Scriptures with that understanding, it all makes sense. Even this phrase, prographo. Prographo. Who are long beforehand prographo for this condemnation. Marked out for this condemnation. Prographo literally means written about beforehand. It doesn't mean they had to do it. It means God knew they would. That's a completely different thing. In His sovereignty, in His understanding, in the fact that He is not bound by time, He knows what everybody's going to do. And knowing that there would be those who creep in with ungodliness, He warns ahead of time. He writes it down. Make sure they know that this is going to happen. Make sure they're aware that attitudes and actions and apostasies are going to come. God, who is love, cares so much that He wrote about them beforehand. I mean, man, go back to Moses. Go back to Enoch. Hey, go all the way back to the beginning and you will see God writing ahead of time what was going to be. Warnings, storm warnings, all the way back to the garden. Storm warnings that God made in earnest. And why? Because love warns. Because love cares enough to warn us far ahead of time. This is what's remarkable, and i got to save it for next week, but the prophecy of Enoch, why it's so remarkable, is he warns of judgment 5,500 years ago. He's already warning, and the earth just rolls on for 5,000, almost 6,000 years since, since he warned, since Enoch said, judgment's coming. Why would God do that? Why would he warn so far back? Because God so loved the world. And he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Again, the nature of God being love, God wants to save. 
So he says, not just a week before Hurricane Florence, he says several millennia early, he says, be, be alert, be aware, hurricanes are a-coming. Prepare for this. I'm marking out ahead of time, I'm warning you ahead of time of those who will come. And so having these storm warnings, how do we, how do we prepare? I mean, how, how do we stand against storms of apostasy? Look at verse 3. He says, while I was making every right effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith. Hey, to contend for the faith is not to be contentious for the faith. That's a different thing. We are not called to be contentious, but to contend earnestly. Uh, the word is epagonizomai. It's where we get our word agony, but it's epagonizomai, to, to agonize over, to wrestle upon is literally what it means. Ep or epi in the Greek means upon, and then agonizomai means to wrestle. We're to wrestle upon. We're to strain against. In other words, these are not the days of wimpy, passive Christianity. We need wrestlers. We need contenders. We need fighters and strugglers who are not afraid to enter the fray by faith to speak the truth of Jesus, no matter what, the, the, you know, let the chips fall where they may. No matter what happens to me. Those who are willing to contend for the faith that was given to us. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the gospel that saves. And I've said this many times, not just to win arguments, but to what? Win souls. That's why we fight. Keep your finger there just for a second. Go back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul speaking to this very thing. And I want you to see this passage because it, it, it explains exactly what Jude is talking about when, when he says we are to contend. I'm writing to you, which is the point of Jude's letter. I'm writing to you to call you to contend for the faith. I'm writing to you to do that myself, to contend for the faith. Well, Paul describes it this way. Verse 24, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's bondservant, the Lord's doulos, the Lord's slave, same word that's used of, of Jude, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's how you contend. Not through quarrelsomeness, not fighting, not trying to win because you're afraid if you lose the argument it's going to make your faith a little weaker. No, you go in with love and compassion and grace to see people saved. That's why we share what we share. So he writes for that reason, that we would contend earnestly for the faith. Go back to Jude, note this. To contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down. Once for all. There is no other. There is no epilogue. There are no appendices to the scriptures. 
There is no afterthought or supplemental message. This is it. Once for all, this word was handed down. Once for all, handed down. Handed down means delivered by hand. The the actual phrase there, the word there. To be delivered by hand or given into the hands of from one hand to another. That's how we got the scriptures and that's how God has carefully preserved his word. And he's done it. The proof of the validity of the scriptures being precise to the ancient days is, is obvious to those who have looked at it. Those who have come along and say, well, the scriptures are tainted or they've been messed up or whatever. We, we, we've got to make some changes. No, you haven't studied it. This word is incredibly, remarkably preserved. And God has done it. He's able to. He can keep his word. Second Peter 1.19, Peter said, We have the prophetic word more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, I could this morning take some time. I'm not going to, but we could get into all kinds of evidence and facts. We can talk about the internal and external validation of the canon of Scripture, that is, God's word. I would refer you to 15 years of verse-by-verse Bible study through the Bible that has brought us to this point in Jude. We've covered every verse. We've looked at all the controversy. And we have seen this word to be true. God keeps His word. Once for all, handed down to the saints. In Galatians 1.8, Paul says clearly, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be accursed. This is it. There is no more. And so when the storm blows in, we don't turn to the newest teaching. We don't go for the latest buzz or the brightest new idea. We turn by the Spirit of God to His Word. We are not earnestly contending for a weak, wonky, unstable, uncertain, insecure faith. We are contending for a faith that stands even against the hurricane winds of heresy. Contend for this. It will not fall. Listen, the Bible will not fail you. How do you know? Because Jesus will not fail you. The Bible only fails you if you close it up, stick it on a shelf, and stop reading it. Which isn't the Bible failing you, it's you failing you. The Scriptures will stand. Jesus cannot fail. He has already won. Which is why Jude also says here that we contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The saints. This is a hugely significant word. Just used twice, but very significant in this letter. The hagios. Saints. Hagios. Holy ones. And it brings me to the final question that we'll deal with this morning. Number four, to whom is Jude writing? The saints. He's already described us. Go back to verse one. Those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. We are the called. We are the called. Well, how do you know? How do you know when you've been called? You know when you answer. You know you've been called when you answer. 
that's the clearest sign to me that I have received a call on my phone is when I answer it. Anytime before that, it could just be a ringing in my brain. But when I answer and I'm talking to someone, now I know I have been called. That's, that's simple, but it's true. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom God foreknew, remember our sovereign God already knew ahead of time? Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's not against will. Remember, He foreknew that we would choose Him. He foreknew that you would accept Jesus. And knowing that, He now predestines you to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8, verse 30. And these whom He predestined, He called. And these whom He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He glorified. It is a perfect design. God does this. But why would God call me? So you could be loved. Beloved. So you could be loved. We are the called beloved in God the Father. Note that we are not beloved just by God the Father. We are beloved in God the Father, and the word is specific. Beloved in. Which means we have become the beloved. Oh yes, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But when you give your life to Jesus, when you answer the call, you are beloved in God. What are you saying, Rick? You've got a whole new identity. You're now beloved as one who belongs. Sons and daughters who belong to a Father who loves us. And we know we're beloved because we are in Him. It's who we are. And in this called belovedness, we are, get this, kept for Jesus Christ. Kept is the word tereo. Jude likes this word. Kept. It's actually tere menois. But the, the root word is tereo. But, but the reason I gave you the longer word there is it means to attend carefully, to take care of, to preserve. And the actual use of the word is very telling. You see, where our Bibles say kept for Jesus Christ, the word for actually isn't there. Kept for is what tete re menois means. Kept for. That's important. Because, you see, when the storm slams me, I'm kept. I'm kept. By Jesus. In Jesus. Through Jesus. But that's not what he's saying. That's all true. But he says we are kept for Jesus. You hear that? Like a bride waiting for her groom. It's not just for the bride. This keeping is for the groom. You're not just kept for your sake. You are kept for Christ's sake. I am kept for His sake. I mean, I'm called, wow, beloved, amazing, and kept for Him. What does that tell you? It tells us He wants us. It tells you He desires you. That He longs for you. He wants you. And so He keeps you (laughs) for Himself. Amazing love. I mean, that, that just blows my mind. It should tell us how He feels about us. Keep your eyes on Him because He is coming soon because He wants you. 
Well, we'll leave the rest of this for another study. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your love. We talk a lot, I talk a lot, and think a lot about my response to You. I guess, Lord, being a self-centered critter, I, I think in terms of my response, forgetting that You have chosen me, that You want me, that we, Father, are kept for You. Lord, I think there may be some or someone here who doesn't believe that this morning. That for all of our longing and desire to be in heaven, for all of our prayers to be with You, Lord Jesus, there is one stronger. There is one prayer greater. And that is Your prayer for us almost hard to swallow. And yet it is true and Your Word tells us we are kept for Jesus. Lord, someone this morning needs to hear that. Someone this morning needs to be reminded of Your deep love and Your desire and Your longing for them. And so I pray that message will will get through. Some of us just need to answer the call, Father phone's ringing off the hook and some are not answering. Holy Spirit, would You move us to respond? Lord, others need to walk in and live in our belovedness. Beloved in You. Which changes who we are. Oh, Father, all of these things that we've talked about this morning, especially in how to stand in hurricane, hurricane force winds, how to reach out, how to be on the rescue teams, all that you're going to deal with in this letter. Lord, these are things that we recognize are bigger than us. And so we ask your Holy Spirit to move. We invite you, Spirit of the living God, to be at work here. To open up opportunities for us to invite people to be in Your presence and in Your Word. To give us boldness, Father, that we wouldn't have on our own. To be ever before us and call us into the fray that we would contend along with Jude earnestly for the faith that You handed down. Father, help us to be saints. You can do this, and we ask You to do this. And we invite your power and your work in us in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you didn't know Jesus loved you so much. And if you didn't, maybe you've never given your life to Him, you've never claimed Him as, as Lord and Savior. If you're willing to give up that place in your life and give it to Him, I invite you to come forward this morning and to, to receive Jesus as your Lord, to become a Christian. If you've never been baptized, you know this is something He's called you to do, invited you to do, asked you to do. And if you haven't done it, why not do it this morning? If you've been doubting or uncertain about how much Jesus wants you, why don't you come and pray about that this morning? And and let's walk out of here knowing we are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing. Please come if you have any need.